The second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 9 through 15. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people, but we are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known in your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we have lost our minds, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Please be seated. The 1960s were a tumultuous time in the United States. In August of 1963, one of the most famous speeches in American history was delivered by Martin Luther King Jr. right there in Washington, D.C. One of my professors had been a student at that time. He was studying in Washington, D.C., and he was just a few blocks from the mall at Washington. But instead of going down and joining the thousands of people walking past his apartment building, he stayed, if I remember right, it was a third-story room. He stayed up there and was cramming for a final. He missed out because he did not step out. He missed out on participating in one of the most historic events in American history. My friends, I do not want you to miss out on one of the most historic events in cosmic history. God's story is unfolding even now. God is writing his story. That story began in Genesis. It's one day still future. God's story will culminate as it's described in the book of Revelation. But from Genesis to Revelation, a cosmic drama is unfolding this is the same story that Abraham was a part of. This is the same story that Moses was a part of, and David, and Daniel, and you can be a part of that same story. It's still happening. It's still unfolding. That story climaxed when God became flesh and dwelt among us. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. 1 John 4, 14, the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. Jesus was born in a manger. He grew up. He taught. He performed miracles. Then he died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he's coming back again one day. You have an opportunity to be a part of spreading that story. This good news, this good news about Jesus has been handed down through the ages. Think about the person who shared the gospel with you, this message, this gospel story, Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a parent. Somebody shared the, the gospel with you. Maybe, maybe someone invited you to church and you heard it from the pastor. Maybe someone put a piece of literature in your hand. 
but someone, a messenger, a representative of God with the gospel took this message and passed it to you. Now, if you could trace back your spiritual lineage, your heritage, you would find that somebody did the same thing for them. Somebody brought the gospel to whoever brought the gospel to you. And somebody brought the gospel to whoever brought the gospel to them. And you could keep going back and back if you could trace out your spiritual lineage, your spiritual heritage, all the way back to the apostles and Jesus There is an unbroken chain down through history that leads to you hearing the gospel. Now, wouldn't it be a shame if you were the last link in that chain? This morning, a man shared about you can be one of those dominoes in someone's life. What if you were the last domino in that line? Or or in the tree the, the spiritual tree, you were the last bit of the branch and it stopped right with you. Wouldn't that be a shame? This chain that stretches all the way back to Jesus and the apostles. My friends, I want you to experience God and you're only going to do that if you participate in God's mission. If you make your story a part of his story. I want you to step out so you don't miss out. I'm not talking about missing out on heaven. I'm missing out. I'm talking about missing out on all the fullness that God has for you. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look in verse 15. He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The order is important. First, you're saved, then you serve. This is, the, this is the important order to get in your mind. You are saved from sin for a mission. Before you step out, you got to ask, what's holding me back? Why, why aren't I stepping out? What's holding me back? Whatever you are holding on to is holding on to you. If you're holding on to something, it's holding you back. What is it? Ask yourself, what am I holding on to? What's holding me back? What's preventing me from stepping out? Is it comfort? Is it my lifestyle? Is it control? Am I in debt? Is it the predictability, a stable job? Is it sports? Is it some sin that you you are unwilling to let go of? For some people, maybe it's just familiar surroundings, familiar food, familiar family. I heard about a guy who was a picky eater, and that's why he didn't want to do cross-cultural ministry. He was afraid of any kind of foreign food, anything he wasn't familiar with. And so I tried to encourage him, look, you got to adopt the missionary motto. Lord, where you feed me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. (laughs) Are you willing, what are you willing to lose to become more pleasing to God. Look in verse 9. This was Paul's ambition. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul wanted to be pleasing. He wanted to be fruitful. He wanted to be useful to the master. Uh, 2 Timothy 
2.20, I believe, it says, um, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Now if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he becomes a vessel for honor, honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That, that always has stuck with me, useful to the master. Don't you want to be useful? So many Christians go through life with the, a, a mindset like a cat. They walk around thinking, my master must think I'm pretty great. But I want you to have the mindset of a dog. My masters must be pretty great. My master must be pretty great. Totally different mindset. Paul was not afraid to expend his life to make sacrifices in service of the gospel. If you look back to to chapter 4, he says in verse 17, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. How could Paul call his suffering light? He suffered tremendously, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead. And yet, compared to eternity, it was light and momentary. My family and I served in South Asia for about, we were with Thai and B for 14 years. And we'd come back to the States, and people would commonly say to us, they'd say, I I could never do what you do. And my wife had a great response. She would say, neither can I. We got to see God come through when we stepped out of our comfort zone. When all of our comfort, all of our supports were stripped away, we got to see God come through over and over. I don't want you to get stuck in your small story. God is inviting you to step out and play a role in history, your role. What is it you are holding on to that's preventing you from embracing all that God has for you. I want to show you a short video. This video is 40 years old, uh, but it makes a great point of the importance of letting go. The baboons always have a secret supply of water, and they're not going to tell anybody where it is. And when a Mahalakhari ventures into the deep Kalahari on a hunting trip, he has to find water, because unlike the Bushman, he doesn't know how to make liquid from a root. But he has his own way of finding out where the water is. First, he laboriously drills a hole in a giant ant heap when he is sure a baboon is watching him because he knows baboons are incurably inquisitive. Next, he puts some wild melon seeds into the hole and works them in so that they drop into a hollow. Then he saunters off knowing the baboon is burning with curiosity. The baboon doesn't trust that human being at all. So he plays it cool, but he's dying to know what gives in that confounded hole. Finally, Mr. Inquisitive can't take it any longer. He's got to know what's in there. He reaches in, grabs a fistful, and now his hand's too big to come out. If he had the sense to drop the seed, he could free his hand. Now he lets go when it's too late. 
Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Those words come from the famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written 500 years ago by Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther. And he was inspired to write those words by Psalm 46, reading Psalm 46, the very first verse of that psalm. Our God, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And the very last verse of that song, the God of Jacob is our stronghold or our fortress. Knowing that God is our fortress gives us the courage to let go. My friends, I want you to step out so you don't, you don't miss out. I want to tell you another story about a man who stepped out, stepped out, and he experienced miraculous things because he did. This story comes from the part of the world where we used to live. We were in Calcutta for three years in India, and this man named Maturanath Bose, he grew up not far from there. Maturanath Bose was from a, a very prominent Hindu family, and, and he heard the gospel. He put his faith in Christ. And he realized, this is not a message I can keep to myself. And so he got in a boat and traveled down the Ganges River into what is now Bangladesh, stopped in a Hindu village, and began preaching the gospel. Well, rather quickly, the leadership of the village realized that if people start to believe this message, it's going to totally upend our social structure and disrupt our position as leaders in the village. So they began to persecute him. They would heckle him while he was preaching, throw rotten fruit at him, mock, and pressure him. Maturanath Bose continued to preach undaunted. Then the persecution got more severe. They began to threaten him. Still, he continued to preach. The leadership gathered together, and they decided we need to kill Maturanath Bose. So they selected one young man to be the assassin. So when, when Maturanath Bose was out, he was, um, uh, the, the, the assassin came in the house, came in his house, and hid underneath his bed. Maturanath Bose comes home. He's getting ready for bed. Before he gets in bed, he kneels beside the bed, not knowing that his assassin is mere inches away, hiding underneath the bed. Maturanath Bose begins pouring out his heart to the Lord, praying about all the suffering and persecution, all the trials that he's going through. And then he begins to name the leadership of the village by name, praying for them, praying for their salvation. And then he mentions the, assassins, the assassin by name. He finishes praying, he looks up, and there's the man standing there with a huge machete in his hand, tears streaming down his face. The man said, you must tell me about this God that you're praying to. Who is this God? I need to know him. You will never see things like that as long as you stay in your comfort zone. I want you to step out so you don't miss out. Join God in his global mission. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, he said, an easy, non-self-denying life will never be one of power. Fruit-bearing involves cross-bearing. Fruit-bearing involves cross-bearing. Well, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, well, well, I don't know if I'm called. Am I called? 
My friend, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you're called. The question is not whether you're called. It's in what capacity are you called. You are called. Christ has given the Great Commission to every Christian. It is still binding on you. When I was in high school, one of my coaches, he would always say, boys, excuses cloud your mind. Don't let excuses cause you to miss out. I want you to notice that Paul was serving from his salvation, not for his salvation. He was ambitious not to earn salvation, but to be pleasing to God. His service was a response to everything God had done for him. I heard someone say not too long ago, graced people are grace people. Have you been graced, graced by God? He has poured out his abundant generosity on you. Think about the untold, incalculable blessings that he's poured out on you. If you know him as Savior, you've been justified, you've been forgiven, you've been given eternal life, united with Christ, adopted by God. You have access to God as your heavenly Father, sealed with the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit. You have a new name, a new nature, a new family, new desires, new power. But you haven't been blessed simply to wallow in the blessings You've been blessed to be a blessing. You're not supposed to just soak and sour. No. You're supposed to be a channel of blessing to others. You've been given a great privilege and called to a great purpose. We're saved from sin for a mission. Now, I know that in this church, you are spiritually well-fed. Pastor Brunson was my pastor at First Baptist Dallas and then at First Baptist Jacksonville. And so I know you're getting well-fed from God's Word. But what happens if you're always taking in but never giving out? You get spiritually constipated. (laughs) Now, I hate to use that kind of language, but it's true. That's what's going to happen. If you are merely hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word, Do you know that's that's actually how how Elvis died? Elvis died of constipation. And when they did an autopsy, they found five-month-old food in his intestines. I don't want you to be spiritually constipated. Notice that Paul was motivated not out of a desire to perform or impress or try to earn some kind of thing, but to be pleasing to the Lord. In 2007, I had the opportunity to go to Jordan, and I met a Jordanian man there who just loved King Hussein. King Hussein was the ruler of Jordan from 1952 until 1999 when he passed away. And this man had nothing but good to say about King Hussein. And and he told me this interesting story about a, a, a very popular radio program that everyone loved to tune into. And it was a call-in show. And even the king liked to listen to this program. And the host was real funny, but people would call in, and the whole premise of the show was that, that people would call and gripe or complain about whatever problems they had in their life, whatever was wrong with the country, and then the host would make light of it. One day, a man called, and he was really in a bad way. He was in dire straits. He He needed a blood transfusion or he was going to die. He was very ill. And 
and he was, he was explaining his story and his situation, there was no blood down at the blood bank. The hospital, they couldn't find anyone to donate the kind of blood that he needed. A few hours later, he received a phone call. Come down to the hospital as quickly as you can. When he walked in, there was King Hussein hooked up to the IV, donating his own blood. The blood saved the man's life. Now, do you think you could find a more loyal subject in all the kingdom, anyone who loved King Hussein more than this man? He had royal blood in his veins. He had been saved by the king's blood. My friends, you have been saved not merely by the blood of Jesus. He didn't merely donate his blood. He gave his life. He made a life donation for you. Look in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Look what it says. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, consumes us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You have been saved by royal blood. Our life then becomes a response, a response to that love. We love because God first loved us. Now, this passage is really fascinating because it unites two things that are often um, pitted against each other, love and fear. Look, Look right there in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But then in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Fear is the appropriate response to the Lord's Power and authority. He is the judge, and all will stand before him. Love is the appropriate response to the Lord's sacrifice. He is our Savior. Someone said, being deeply loved gives you strength, but loving deeply gives you courage. Now look in verse 10. It says, Paul was motivated by his expectation of judgment day. He knew judgment day was coming. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I remember the first time I ever heard this concept, I was really confused. Wait, wait, Christians have to stand on judgment day? I thought, I thought Jesus took our wrath in our place. I thought he bore the penalty. I thought he rescued us from judgment day. Students of the Bible have discerned that there are Two judgments coming, one for believers and one for non-believers. Now, the one for believers is not about condemnation. No, Jesus has saved us from damnation. He has saved us. He's rescued us. So this judgment is not for condemnation. It's for commendation. I get that from verse 10. Look what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ... So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Rewarded. This is a judgment for not whether you're saved, but what you did with the salvation that you were given. Not to determine salvation, but to evaluate our service. So one of the greatest rewards that you can receive is an increased capacity 
to glorify God for all eternity. What you do in this short life on earth determines your ability to enjoy God for all eternity. It enlarges your soul's ability to worship. Do you get it? Our culture takes the idea of heaven and hell quite lightly. Christians, you do not have to fear the, um, the wrath of God. Jesus took that. But Judgment Day is serious. Knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. There's a, a lot of mockery that goes on in our culture about the afterlife. There's some TV program called uh, The Good Life that just makes, makes fun, makes a mockery of, of heaven and hell. It's very serious. But it's real, and Paul knew it, and he was looking forward to it, and he, he used it as a motivation. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching in Kansas at a little church, and, and during one of the breaks... This sweet old woman came up to me, and she said, I've, I've worked in hospice for eight years. And, uh, and so hospice is really rough because you know the patients aren't coming out. But then even within hospice, there's an even more difficult, challenging service called angel care. And angel care is when you are with the patients during those, those final hours and moments before they die. And this woman told me that she would often volunteer for the angel service just to relieve her fellow nurses of this tremendous burden. And she told me I could almost always tell, even before I asked, if they knew the Lord. She said it makes such a difference how they pass if they know Jesus as their Savior. When I was in high school, a man, one of my friends, was named Adam. And he was a pastor's kid. His dad was a pastor. And his mom, Nelda, was such a godly woman. Just being near her, you could, you could sense the aroma of Christ. Such a godly woman. But cancer racked her body. And she was um, non-responsive to all the treatments. And so she just withered down to just the skeleton of her former self. Bedridden for weeks. And then... Uh, for several days, she hadn't been able to lift her head uh, off the pillow or even communicate. Just her eyes were glazed over. And, and so um, my dad went to visit the family. And, uh, and then all the family there was gathered around. They knew it was her last moments. And then for the first time in days, she sat up, lost the glazed look in her eyes, smiled. And began to wave. She was looking around and waving. And smiling. But she wasn't looking at the people in the room. She was looking past them. And smiling. And then she laid back and died. When we lived in Calcutta. Our pastor. Pastored this family. Was in his church. And he shared the gospel with the young lady. That was part of this family. Over and over. And this young lady steadfastly refused to trust in Jesus. Rejected him over and over. She got deathly ill. She was hospitalized. And it became clear that she was approaching the end of her life. 
So pastor went to be with the family. He went to visit her in the hospital. Again, he shared the gospel. And again, she rejected the gospel. There on her deathbed, refusing the grace of Christ. There, they could tell she was approaching the end. She had rejected the gospel again. She sat up in bed and she began to scream, It burns! It burns! It burns! And then she laid back and died. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on in either one of those stories. I don't know exactly what was happening, but it seems to me that as they were transitioning from this life, they were getting a glimpse, a preview of the next life. It is real and it is serious and we know it and so we persuade men. Now there are two opposite errors that we could fall into. On the one side, you think it all depends on God. On the other side, you think it all depends on you. If you think it all depends on God, what happens? You get complacent, you get lazy, you lose your sense of urgency, you quit calling people to make a decision. On the other hand, if you think it all depends on you, what happens? You get panicked. You feel guilty all the time, crushed under the weight of guilt. You, you start manipulating people, trying to force a conversion, force a decision. Overly pragmatic, you might cut corners theologically or dilute the gospel or something like that. No. God is sovereign, his agency is supreme, but it does not cancel out our agency. He invites us to play a role. He calls us to be co-workers, co-laborers with him. But my wife likes to say, he does the heavy lifting. Amen? Going back to Psalm 46, look at verse 10. Uh, Let's see. Cease striving. Some translations say, be still and know that I am God. Relax. Relax. We get to serve out of rest, out of confidence that God is in control. We get to participate. Your your participation is important. God loves to use his children to be a part of his plan. But I want you to step out so you don't miss out. How do you avoid missing out? By aligning yourself with God's heart. God's heart is for the nation. Does your heart beat to the rhythm of God's heart? Now, I have to admit something. For years, I I misread the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, you can't help but notice from cover to cover, it's talking about the nation's. God blessed Abraham. He said, I've blessed you to be a blessing to the nations. So all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Somebody said, if you took, if you took missions out of the Bible, you'd be left with a front cover and a back cover. But I thought, especially in the book of Psalms, um, that whenever it talked about God ruling over all the earth, this was poetic language. I mean, it's a book of poetry. So poets use hyperbole. They use exaggeration. You know, when I read things like from Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. I thought that was poetic language. No. The more I read the Bible, the more I realized these kind of verses are all over the place. 
The plan God set in motion in Genesis will culminate in Revelation. Now look, Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. Now we like that pithy little part of the verse, but it doesn't stop there. There's not a period there. It says, it continues, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Are you going to be a part of it? Now, speaking of Psalm 46, you never know what you're going to learn in church. Some people think there's a hidden message here in this, in this psalm, in Psalm 46. When I lived in Dallas, I volunteered at the, at the prison, and I would talk to people who were in solitary confinement as a volunteer chaplain. So one night, I knocked on this guy's door. I said, hey, do you want to talk to a volunteer chaplain? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I got a question. I need help. I need your help to break the Bible code. Now, 20 years ago, there was a popular book called The Bible Code, and it's been uh, discredited, but uh, it was very popular at that time. I was thinking, oh, no, what does this guy have in mind? He said, no, no, people are always telling me to look up stuff in the Bible. I don't know how to do it. Like somebody told me, read John 3.16. What is this 3.16? You got to help me crack the code. I'm like, all right. I can help you crack that code. I can help you. Showed them the table of contents. All right, you see the big number? That, that's the chapter, and these little numbers, those are the verses. He was thrilled. Now he could crack the code. But some people think that there is a, a secret message right here in Psalm 46. Now, you can't find it in, in other translations of the Bible, but it's there in the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version was published in 1611. And in 1611, Shakespeare was 46 years old. Now, he was not on the translation committee. I heard that he had a falling out with King James. Even though King James had been a patron of his for years, he was not on the translation committee, but he was widely regarded as the premier author in the English language. And so the scholars who were on the translation committee decided to honor him. And so if you go to Psalm chapter 46 in the King James Version of the Bible, and you count down 46 words from the beginning, let's see if we can get it up, 46 words down from the, the first, what do you come to? There it is. I was looking at the wrong screen. How did I miss that one? You come to the word shake. Now if you go to the end of the chapter, and you start counting 46 words up from the bottom, would it be amazing, not counting Selah, would it be amazing if you came to the word spear? Right there in chapter 46 of the King James Bible, the translators honored, so the theory goes, Shakespeare for his 46th birthday. Now, I want you to imagine that hidden away in some English manner, in some dusty old attic, in a, in a bin, they find a previously unknown manuscript of Shakespeare. Now, this discovery would send shockwaves through the literary world. People would be clamoring to read this play and, and to see it perform at their local Shakespeare theater. People would be excited. But then, as they begin to study the document, they realize it's a, a five-act play but act four 
is missing. They've only got scene one of act four. They've got scene one, two, and three in full. They have, um, I'm sorry, act one, two, and three. And then they've got act five complete. But act four is missing everything except scene one. Well, what do they do? Well, they, all the scholars, they begin to study the manuscript. They, they pour over it, and they try to understand the plot line and the character. What are the themes? What are the, what are the events trying to happen? And then, when it goes to the theaters, the producers, the directors, the actors, they have to sort of ad-lib. It's up to them to fill in the blanks. They've got to improvise the unscripted parts of the act, allowing their performance to be shaped by Shakespeare's story as they have come to understand it. Now, I think that's a pretty good illustration of what we're trying to do. We have the Old Testament. We have the Gospels. We have the Book of Acts. We have the letters. We have the Book of Revelation. But we are part of this same story. Now, we have the framework. We have the overall plot. Trajectories, patterns, examples, instructions. We have our marching orders, the Great Commission. But it's now our time to step up on stage, to participate in writing this script. Based on what we know of the author, after studying the text that he has given us, we step up on stage and play our role. We get to be a part of the cosmic drama. The grand meta-narrative, that story that God is playing out in history. You can participate by leveraging your life, your gifts, your career, your time, your resources, your network, everything you have. You see, God doesn't need these things. He's self-sufficient. You need to let go of them. We have the final act there in the book of Revelation. And Revelation 7, 9 gives us the grand vision, the end of the story. A great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And do you know what they're doing? They are worshiping God with all their hearts, just worshiping their hearts out. You can be a part. You can play a role if you step out so you don't miss out. When I was a boy, my, my mom would take my sister and me. Um, every week, we'd go down to, to the old folks' home, to the nursing home. And there were some people that we didn't mind visiting at all. There were, there were two kinds of people that we noticed in the nursing home. There were people with, with happy wrinkles and people with sad wrinkles, grumpy wrinkles, my sister and I called it when we were little. And the people with happy wrinkles, you could tell, had spent a life a joyful life, a life of smiling, and, uh, and we, we didn't mind visiting them, but there was one old man named Mr. Hendricks, grumpy old guy, and he had grumpy wrinkles, sad wrinkles, and we hated visiting him, but my mother very faithfully shared the gospel with him over and over, and he didn't want anything to do with it. One day after church, we would always take a nap, and uh, suddenly my mom hops up, Starts getting ready to go, and, uh, and my dad's like, what are you doing? She's like, I got to go down to the nursing home. And my dad's like, right, na- right now? And she, yeah, I got to go. I got to go. Why don't you do it after the nap? Nope, got to go right now. Went down to the nursing home, shared the gospel with Mr. Hendricks, 
He trusted in Christ, and now he's in heaven with God. My friends, it's time to let go of whatever it is that's holding you back. Step out. Step out so you don't miss out. And step up to play the role God has for you. Let's pray together. Great God in heaven, thank you that your heart is for the nations. Lord, help us to align ourselves with your heart, to be a part of what you're doing. Bless now as we invite every person in this room to consider what role they will play. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you realize that you are not participating in the way God wants you to, if there's something you are holding on to, I want you to do business with God and ask, what am I supposed to do with this? Am I getting spiritually constipated? How do you want me to participate? But even before that, backing up, if you don't know for sure that heaven is your home, if you have never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, if you don't have confidence that you have eternal life, that's priority number one. Jesus died for you so you could be forgiven. He shed his blood. He made a life donation so that you could have eternal life. If you need to trust in him, that's all you have to do. Just say, yes, I, I trust in Jesus. I realize my own efforts are inadequate. Then I want you to make a decision right now. You come talk to pastor, talk to one of the other pastors. This is the most important decision you will ever make. If you know Jesus as your Savior, praise God. But you're not only saved from sin, you are saved for a mission. Won't you respond right now?